Over recent years, we've seen people arguing that the modern economy is a case of innovation versus equality. We've seen a huge surge in technology. CRISPR-Cas9 is now allowing gene editing of a kind that was only dreamt of in science fiction novels. Artificial intelligence means that computers are now better than humans at recognising faces and at transcribing voices. We've seen computers outpacing humans, first in checkers, then in chess, then in go, and now in Texas Hold'em poker. And the gap is growing. We now have computers that are better than the be world's best players by the same level as the world's best players are to an average amateur player. In other words, if the computers that control Go and poker and chess were self-aware, they might look at our intellectual capacities the same way as we look at the intellectual capacities of our dogs and cats. We've had huge advances in robots, suggesting some to say that the factory of the future uh, will contain just one human and one dog. Uh, the human's role will be to feed the dog, the dog's role will be to bite the human if the human tries to touch the robots. <laughs> and in amidst this, we've seen a massive increase in inequality. As recently as the 1980s, the bottom 90% of Americans had four times as much wealth as the top 0.1%. Now those two groups have about the same share of wealth. That is, 270 million Americans have about the same share of wealth as the top 300,000 Americans. Back in the 1960s, if an average worker in a big firm wanted to earn what the CEO earns, they'd have to work for 20 years. Now they would have to work for 300 years to earn what the CEO takes home in just a single year. Increasingly, inequality has become a story of the haves and the have-yots. We've seen these, these changes come about at a time when many at the top of the distribution are arguing that inequality is just the price of progress. Recently, Bill Gates criticised Elizabeth Warren's tax proposals on the basis that they would stifle innovation. Paul Graham, one of the founders of Y Combinator, uh, which led to the development of startups such as Dropbox, Stripe and Airbnb, described himself as a, proudly as a manufacturer of inequality. Paul Graham said, quote, I've become an expert on how to increase in economic inequality, and I've spent the past decade working hard to do it. Billionaire Tom Perkins goes further, criticising those who uh, have a go at, uh, at rising inequality. He says, writing from San Francisco, I would call attention to the parallels of Nazi Germany in its war on the 1% namely the Jews, to the progressive war on the American 1%, namely the rich. Tom Perkins is, of course, illustrating Godman's law, the idea that the longer a debate goes on, the higher the probability that somebody mentions Hitler. <laughs> yeah. 
but he is also pointing to uh, a sentiment which has become increasingly common, that inequality is the price of progress. Joshua and I take a different view. We think that inequality is a very poor lever to boost innovation. And to those who say that we need inequality uh, to get more entrepreneurship, we say, you sound a lot like the old bumbling character Ted Baxter from the Mary Tyler Moore show. The character who said that he was really worried about overpopulation, so was going to have six children to increase the chances that one of them would solve the problem of overpopulation. <laughs> the reason we think that inequality is not required to get more innovation is because we believe it fundamentally misunderstands the process of innovation and entrepreneurship. We argue it's not about the size of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Instead, it's about the impediments to starting that search. We need to provide more opportunities to, the, to potential entrepreneurs growing up in disadvantaged backgrounds. One study of US innovators finds that those born into the top 1% were 10 times more likely to become inventors than those born into the bottom half of the income distribution. There's a few reasons for that. Bright entrepreneurs from affluent backgrounds can borrow from the bank of mum and dad. They can draw on broad social networks to connect to suppliers, business partners and customers. But by contrast, entrepreneurs in poor families may not be able to break through. In Australia, the Startup Master Survey of Technology Entrepreneurs found a similar skew. In our view, women ought to constitute 51% of entrepreneurial talent, but right now they only make up 22% of startup entrepreneurs. Children of entrepreneurial parents are overrepresented among startups. One reason for that is clear when startup entrepreneurs are asked how they funded their startup. More than two thirds say that they made a personal cash contribution. This is true too when you look <coughs> geographically. Science innovation is relatively broadly spread across the United States. But studies that have looked at where entrepreneurs emerge create a map of the US that looks more like the Himalayas <coughs> than the plains of Iowa. There's huge peaks in places like Boston and San Francisco, and huge deserts in between. The same thing's true of Australia. You have startup hubs in the centre of our big cities, but areas like Dubbo or Logan have a dearth of startup entrepreneurs. We see, see this not just as a problem of egalitarianism, but a problem of growth at the same time. We think it represents lost Einsteins and lost Curies, thousands of them, youngsters that could have made a great contribution to the productive capacity of the economy, but are unable to, make, to break through. So what do we do? Well, one of our core messages is that we have to embrace uncertainty. We think if there's one certain thing about the future, it's that change will happen in unexpected ways. We don't think there is a perfect crystal ball, 
that can forecast which jobs are going to come and which jobs are going to go. And in supporting that view, we draw attention to, the, to, to inventions that have gone on to market with even a degree of uncertainty as to whether they'll succeed. When the iPhone came out, the Microsoft CEO of the time called it a not very good email machine. <laughs> At that time, BlackBerry had more than half the market. Since then, over a billion iPhones have been sold and BlackBerry's market capitalisation is a tenth of what it once was. But not long before the iPhone, we had another innovation, the Segway. Remember that, uh, those upright uh, transportation vehicles? I can hear some laughter in the room. Uh, but people weren't laughing at the time. Uh, Bill, Steve Jobs said that the invention of the Segway could revolutionise personal transport. He said it would be bigger than the PC. Others argued that the Segway would be bigger than the internet. But, as we know, they're largely a failed concept, used only by traffic cops in a few cities uh, and by tourists going, going around the place. People were wrong about the iPhone and wrong about the Segway for reasons that it was hard to pick at the outset. And we should bring that same degree of modesty to how we think about new innovations today. It's true that we can see some patterns in job growth. We've seen a growth in manual jobs, such as security guards and masseuses, and a growth in cognitive jobs, such as uh, bar barristers or surgeons. At the same time, we've seen a fall in routine jobs, such as bookkeepers. That suggests that skills such as empathy and problem solving are likely to be useful into the future and that the skills of pure brawn and the ability to perform repetitive tasks are, are likely to be less rewarding. But we can't be absolutely sure what path artificial intelligence will take and how the job market will change. So that means we need to think in terms of uncertainty. In our lives, many of us face uncertainty as a core challenge. We don't know whether or not our car will run into someone else's vehicle. We don't know whether our house will get burgled. So we take out insurance. In the same way, Joshua and I argue, society needs to take out insurance. We need to ensure that we are as robust as possible to technological change in unexpected ways. So, what does, what does insurance look like when it comes to innovation and equality? For a start, we believe it, may, it involves getting education right. Teaching is the profession that creates all other professions. And yet, if you look in the United States, the typical teacher scored in the bottom half of his or her class. In Australia, teacher academic aptitude has fallen since the 1960s. We believe that there ought to be a stronger focus on ensuring that we're getting great people into teaching and keeping them there. We're inspired by the example of Finland, which scored below Australia in the 1970s until it placed a single focus on teacher quality uh, as an education reform. 
They closed down some of their underperforming teacher education faculties, focused attention on the standing of the teaching profession, and ensured that Finland moved from the bottom half towards the top of the international league table. In Finland, those who become teachers are in the top tenth of the distribution, and that's made a massive impact to the ability of young Finns to engage in, a, in a, well, the face of technological change. When it comes to vocational training, we think it's important to ensure that vocational training does two things. Vocational training uh, needs to be general and so people are able to adapt as the labour market changes. Plenty of people talk about the German apprenticeship system as being ideal. I spent some time in Germany talking to the confederations of industries about exactly how it works. The German system is very good at eliminating youth unemployment and ensuring that people slot right in to a job. But it's less effective at ensuring that young, young vocational, uh, vocationally trained people continue to have fulfilling jobs as they move into their 50s and 60s. For that, the Swiss apprenticeship system seems to work better. Fewer categories, more flexibility. We need to learn from both of those countries about how to raise the standing of vocational training, but also ensure that vocational training is plugged in to lifelong learning. The growth of the MOOC uh, is going to be fundamental to vocational training and to, higher to, to university training as well. Right now, Georgia Tech's online courses account for 7% of all of the computer science masters in the United States. What, I, what MOOCs offer the promise of is reducing the cost of education and unbundling courses. You can think of MOOCs as being uh, to education a bit like what Spotify and iTunes are to music, allowing people to take bite-sized chunks of education rather than having to sign up to buy the whole album. MOOCs offer the potential of people just filling in the gaps in their knowledge and, the, and getting the lifelong learning that is so critical to good education. Joshua and I also argue that an insurance-based approach means that we need to encourage worker mobility. The more you're locked into a single occupation, the more you're vulnerable to change. Right now, one in five American workers are subject to a so-called non-compete clause, meaning that their employer prevents them from going off and starting a, starting a business in a similar line of work, or from working for a competitor. The more that workers are locked into a single employer, the more that wage growth is dampened, and the less workers are able to find the best fit for them uh, and the most productive outcomes for the economy. Here in Australia, we don't have great data on non-compete clauses, but we do know there's something similar going on in franchise agreements. We recently surveyed a number of the big franchise firms and discovered that a number of them have clauses that prevent workers from operating, uh, from taking a job in a competing chain. That's bad for innovation, uh, and that's, uh, that encourages workers to put all their eggs in the one basket. So for anyone interested in working in, no, in uh, non-competes and no-poach clauses and, uh, in the law school, I think this is a rich vein of research and a critical area of policy reform. 
We also reject the idea that the best way of boosting growth is to cut taxes on the super-rich and cutting back on education spending as a result. The result of, of lower taxes on billionaires and less spending on school science programs wouldn't just be more inequality, it would also be less innovation. It's one of those, one of those areas uh, where the trade-off would be bad in both, both dimensions. So let me finish with a word of advice for those who are at the cusp of their careers, who are looking at making a, making a choice and finding your way in the world. Let me tell you the tale of two Bens. Ben number one is the star, Benjamin Braddock, the star of the 1967 hit movie, The Graduate. In that movie, he is cornered at a cocktail party by Mr Maguire, a friend of his parents. Maguire has very strong advice for Ben Braddock. He says, I'll tell you just one word, plastics. That's where it's going to be at, plastics. Thankfully for Ben Braddock, he doesn't pursue the advice of Mr Maguire. He goes instead and chases the girl of his dreams. But there are plenty of Mr Maguires around in today's world telling young people that they should specialise narrowly in the next new thing. Specialise in blockchain. Learn all about a narrow area of healthcare. It's all going to be at environmental technology. Make sure you know about a narrow area of mathematics. Our forecast is somewhat different. Our forecast is that those who say they can confidently forecast the future will end up with egg on their faces. There is no modern-day equivalent of plastics. Instead, the, Frank the Ben that we think uh, young, young people should follow is Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin has an almost comical list of successes. He was an inventor, a politician, a diplomat and an author. He founded the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia's fire department. He invented the lightning rod and bifocals and, by the way, helped draft the Declaration of Independence. But Franklin wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He grew up with 16 siblings in a poor family. What's key to understanding Ben Franklin is his curiosity and the value he placed on acquiring new skills. He only had two years of formal education, but he relied on a careful practice of bettering himself each week with what's, call what's called his 13 virtues. Books were expensive, so he set up discussion groups in order to share ideas. He even taught himself to swim in an era where that skill was extraordinarily rare. Three centuries on, the challenge is to ensure that everyone has the chance to follow a Ben Franklin-like path. By developing a broad portfolio of talents, Ben Franklin ensured that he had insurance at a time when social changes were rapid. Education acts as a kind of buffer against social, economic and global shocks. Don't follow the advice given to Ben Braddock. Instead, be like Ben Franklin. We're launching this book at an uncertain time. Populism's in the air, the trade war may or may not get worse. We really have no idea what Amazon will do to retail nor when the steering wheels will come out of driverless cars. We don't know whether Elon Musk's 
Hyperloop system will be the answer to high-speed rail or a complete flop. But the answer in the current environment isn't to throw egalitarianism out the window. It's to recognise that our greatest potential comes not from offering a better deal to billionaires, but instead to offering more opportunities to talented people from disadvantaged backgrounds. One way we'll get more innovation and more equality is by finding those lost Einsteins and lost Curies. If we find them and give them the same set of advantages that are given to those from affluent backgrounds, we can indeed have a future that's more like Star Trek than Terminator. Thank you very much. <laughs>